Good evening, Beacon Baptist Church. It's good to see you. Uh, my name is Brad Gray. As uh, Pastor Blaylock mentioned, my wife and I, if you don't know, we came here back in, I think it was like 2015 or so, and uh, we attended here for a while. Short version of this, uh, then God called us to leave the Treasure Coast and go to the Keystone State of Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out why, but uh, you know we're we're happy with where as God has planted us. Uh, but I always like to say that it's always it's always a a thrill of mine to come back to this church. I was actually um, preaching at my dad's church. My dad's a pastor in South Carolina, Greenville, on Sunday, and I was mentioning, and I'll mention it to you as well. I feel among the very luckiest. Uh, because I feel like I have three church families, uh, the one I grew up in, my dad's church, the one I currently serve in Pennsylvania, and also this church, Beacon Baptist Church. I, uh, I always miss, uh, miss worshiping with you all, and it's always a pleasure and a joy uh, to come back into this auditorium and uh, sing God's praises and hear the word preached, so it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I hope you'll turn to 2 Kings chapter 18 and keep your Bibles open. We're going to be turning to a couple of different passages tonight. As I hope to show you something that I have just found and I was struck by as I was studying the Word, and uh, I hope to point this out to you, how we can see the gospel from a very interesting little anecdote that the historian includes in the book of 2 Kings. In one of those sort of like blink-and-you'll-miss-it sort of moments here in 2 Kings 18, especially verse 4, the historian gives us, I would say, one of those glimpses of how God's grace and truth and his holiness, I would even say, is defaced and demeaned and degraded by Satan himself. Notice verse 4. Well, actually, let me back up to verse 1 just to try and get you into the text here as we see uh, King Hezekiah begin his reformation, if you will, of the nation of Judah. Notice verse 1 of Second Kings 18. Now, it came to pass... In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, the king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, did. He removed the high places and break the images, and cut down the groves, and break in pieces the brazen serpents that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him." Verse 4 sort of constitutes the sweeping endeavor that Hezekiah initiates to reform and revive all of Judah back to a right worship of Yahweh. For decades, perhaps even centuries, Judah has likewise plunged along with Israel into the worship of Baal and other idolatrous images. And here, right here in 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah finds the book of the law as the chronicler tells us in 2 Chronicles. And then in the very first month of him being in office, if you will, he initiates this sweeping revival, breaking down images, bringing back the law into the center of the people of Judah and their lives. All of which evidences the fact that Hezekiah was one of the last good kings that ever came out of God's people. 
Unlike many in his day, and all of his predecessors, we might even say too, he was committed very wholeheartedly and very truthfully to the words of Yahweh in a way that he would want all of the people to be committed along with him. The chronicler, in fact, you don't have to go there, but he spends three entire chapters detailing the ways in which he executes and initiates this revival. No cranny of God's house was left untouched as he very much aimed to bring all of this uh, religion and worship back to where it rightly belonged, aimed squarely at Jehovah God. And part of this reformation, as we see here in verse 4, includes this interesting little detail this destruction of idols and images, but especially one that was so beloved to the people of Judah. Notice verse 4 again. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break, down, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel had, had, did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. By this time, of course, Judah, much like all of her heathen neighbors, had become a hotbed for religious idolatry and relic-making, if you will. They were known to pray to all sorts of types of different gods. So when Hezekiah comes into power, sitting on the throne, it must have felt like a bull in a china shop. If he's just going around, breaking down all these images, breaking down high places, breaking down all these things that the people of Judah had come to replace with Yahweh himself. And it just so happens that one of those images is this very beloved statue this brazen serpent that Moses has made. Now let's pause. You might be already jumping the gun. <laughs> Numbers 21 tells us about this brazen serpent, of course. This brazen serpent that Moses, the leader of God's people, had forged in the wilderness. And yet, all of these centuries later, the people of Judah had become to sort of fashion this sort of shrine around the serpent, praying to it, burning incense to it. Hezekiah sees this as an abomination. He sees it for what it is. He even gives it that very demeaning name, as you might see in your text, Nehushtan, which literally means a thing of bronze, a thing of brass. So as he grabs it in his hands, I just have this mental picture in my mind, he's grabbing it sort of off the little shrine, off the little altar that he had erected for it. He grabs it by the neck and he throws it to the ground and screams, Nahushtan, you're praying to a thing of brass. You're just praying to a hunk of metal. And he throws it and it smashes into bits on the floor. Can you imagine the sort of looks that he got? <laughs> as, he, as he takes in hand this treasured idol. Have you seen those videos? <laughs> I was looking at some just for fun. Those videos of sports teams when they win whatever some such championship. And you know what's going to happen because they're celebrating a little too hard. <laughs> and you know it. You can see it. And all of a sudden that beautiful crystal ball that all of those players have worked so hard for just falls out of one player's hands and it shatters into pieces all over the floor. You gasp. <laughs> This thing that they had worked for, this thing that symbolized all of their hopes and their dreams and their blood and their sweat and their effort is now in pieces on the floor. Everyone gasps. 
Multiply that by 700 years of his history and, and longing and, and all of this sort of devotion, and that's the sort of reaction that you would have garnered, that Hezekiah garnered. 700 years has elapsed since this, this serpent was forged, and here's this hotshot king, Hezekiah, coming into that place of worship, breaking down this priceless image of Israelite history. What in the world, man? What are you doing? <laughs> to understand why he does this, why he sees it as such an abomination and why it's worthy of being crushed to bits, I think we have to go to Numbers 21. So turn there, Numbers 21, where we see where this serpent originally comes from. Numbers 21, of course, records another instance of the people of Israel as they have been marching in the wilderness. And here we see them, as we often see them, griping and moaning about their situation. Notice verse 4. Numbers 21.4 says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this, this light bread, the manna that God had given the people of God to supply and meet their needs they were already griping and complaining about. Too many casseroles perhaps made out of that manna for them, for their likings. And here they are, all the people of Israel. Can you imagine Moses? How many times he heard, it's too hot, it's, it's too, there's no food, there's no water, I want to go home, are we there yet? Maybe that is like your car when you go on a vacation. <laughs> and Moses heard this from uh, some million different voices. And here they are, they're in the wilderness, complaining as they normally do, and perhaps God was just a little bit more impatient with them than normal on this particular day, and he sends a deluge of fiery serpents into their midst. Notice verse 6. Right after their complaints, it says, And the Lord sent fiery, that is, venomous, poisonous serpents among the people. And they bit the people, and much people of Israel died punishment for the ways in which they are already griping and complaining about God's miraculous deliverance of them out of Egyptian bondage. And eventually, as we see in verse 7, the people of God become so flustered and frustrated with their situation that they approach Moses, perhaps in a bout of repentance, and they pray to him that they say, Moses, can you just do something about the snakes? Verse 7, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And such is when Moses is given this incredibly curious command straight from the mouth of Yahweh. That is to forge a serpent, a snake out of bronze, and hold it up on a pole for all the people of Israel to see. And if anyone looked at that serpent, 
If their eyes happened to fall on that serpent of brass, they would be healed immediately from all of the venom that was already coursing through their veins. Notice verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had, been, had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Healing life cord through, coursed through the veins of any Israelite that happened to see and gaze upon that serpent that was lifted up upon that pole. A bona fide miracle. As that field of wounded and dying Israelites suddenly burst with life. All because Moses obeyed this very curious command to lift up a serpent. So take that. A moment of God's, yes, unforeseen salvation of his people from a situation that they got themselves in. Fast forward 700 years. And what do we find the people doing? They've come to revere that serpent, that brazen serpent, as some sort of idol. Its significance has totally been altered, if you go back to 2 Kings chapter 18. It's no longer an instrument of worship. It is now an object of worship. They're burning incense to it. They're bowing before it, praying to it, hoping that this thing, this hunk of brass, yes, would perhaps give them some sort of spiritual insight, some sort of, uh, sort of wisdom from above. What was originally intended by Jehovah God to be an instrument of healing and worship which would direct all of the people's gaze onto their one true healer has here become an idol. Think about the decline. After all of those years of carefully preserving this thing of brass, the people have misunderstood their own history. They had misunderstood and they had perhaps turned a blind eye to the ways in which God had worked out perfectly their deliverance in all of those years past. And here now, this thing that was supposed to be a blessing was a disgrace and now you can understand perhaps why Hezekiah was so adamant about getting rid of it and taking it in his hand and throwing it to the ground. It didn't matter what your grandma thought of it. It didn't matter how much of a treasured heirloom it had become to the people of Israel. It didn't matter how valuable it was, what you could get for it on eBay. He smashed it to bits because it represented a work of God that had been degraded and demeaned and totally diluted of all of its power, of all of its grace, of all of its meaning, and it needed to be crushed. It needed to be destroyed. For you and for me, though, there's a lot more than just brass serpents and broken idols here in 2 Kings 18. Because for you and for me, even though we know perhaps a little bit better even than Hezekiah and Moses do, we know the true meaning of this brass serpent. Turn with me to John chapter 3. Moses and Hezekiah for all of their devotion and faithfulness, didn't, yes, even they didn't know what this brass serpent truly meant, 
was truly to represent. We know, because Jesus tells us so. In John chapter 3, this very familiar passage, perhaps one of the most famous passages in all of the history of the Bible, what with everyone perhaps learning John 3.16 as the very first memory verse when you go to VBS or some such uh, children's ministry. And within this very famous nighttime conversation between the Pharisee Nicodemus and the teacher Jesus, we are given this amazing glimpse in which Jesus reaches back centuries, a millennia, into Israelite history and grabs this very same illustration to show forth what he was about to do in the coming years. And yes, even here, we are told what is the true and everlasting, and dare I say, divine meaning of that brass snake. Notice John 3, we'll pick up at verse 13, in the midst of this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. Jesus says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Okay, let's pause again. (laughs) Because Jesus has made this incredible connection between 2 Kings 18 and Numbers 21, and here, now, and what he was about to do in the coming years. As he says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent on a pole, so too must the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Ancient of Days, as Daniel calls him, so too he must be lifted up. Lifted up, of course, if you read a couple other places in the Gospel of John, is sort of a shorthand way of saying crucified. So too must the Messiah the one that Israel had longed for, waited for, yearned for, so too he must be crucified, lifted up for the people of Israel, for all of the world even, to have eternal life. Which makes it very apparent that even in these early days, Jesus already was very much aware of how his days on this earth were going to end. He knew. He knew why he had come. As the hymn says, born to die upon Calvary. He knew that after all of these events, after, after whatever was about to transpire in the days ahead, of, after all of his teachings, his time on earth would end in death, and death of the most shameful of sorts. Nailed like a common criminal on a tree of wood right outside of a Roman outpost. Nothing much to say more than that. This cross, as we see here, as Jesus here evidences, was not optional to his mission on earth. It was his mission. This was his whole purpose in becoming incarnate of God, taking on flesh, was to have that same flesh pierced by nails. As he here says, I have come down out of heaven to be lifted up. From the very beginning, the commentator Alexander McLaren says, he knew, Jesus knew, that the cross was to be his end. It was to him the very heart of the work which he came to do. 
And we could even say that just as those paralyzed Israelites in the wilderness back in Numbers 21 had only to look, that was their only requirement. The only thing that was laid upon them was to look at the serpent and they would live. They would have healing course through them. Here Jesus has just made the same connection that yes, so too is believing the only requirement for sinners to be made whole. Nothing else is put upon them. Nothing else is required of them. No scratching and crawling your way to get to Jesus. Look and live. Believe and have eternal life. For the people of Israel, number 21, it didn't matter what condition they were in. It didn't matter how many snake bites they'd already suffered. It didn't matter how much their blood had a venom, out, uh, venom content to it. It did not matter how far away they were from that serpent made of brass that Moses lifted up. All that mattered is that they looked. And in that look, they would be healed. They would be made whole immediately on the spot. And Jesus says, here, the same is true for everyone that looks upon the Savior and believes in what he has done. So too will they be saved, have eternal life. It doesn't matter how much sin you have, how much baggage you think you have. All that matters is that you believe on the one who is lifted up on your account for your sake and all of your sin is taken away immediately. Look and live, believe and have eternal life, which I think brings me to, I would say, the most powerful truth in all of these three passages and perhaps, dare I say, the entire Bible. Because think about it, back in, you don't have to turn there, but think about Numbers 21. The people of Israel, they're surrounded by venomous snakes all in their camp. How were they healed? That's perhaps a very elementary question. But they were healed by looking at a serpent made of brass. They are healed by looking at the very thing that they are being killed by. I don't know about you, but perhaps you don't have any good association with snakes. Perhaps you are familiar with that term that the only good snake is a dead one. Perhaps that's how you live. That's how you operate. And yet, of all things for Israel, with fiery, venomous, poisonous snakes circling all around them, what are they told to look at? A snake. Another one. Of all things, it was that serpent that animal, that wretched creature, perhaps in your eyes, that still, yes, bears the curse of death that was laid upon it by Jehovah in the garden. And yet, I think that's what makes it all the more stunning. That is what God did. He called his people to look upon the thing that represented death, and that is what would give them life. That emblem of curses, that image of death was held up for all, yes, in that wilderness as an emblem of healing and of salvation. And just as the serpent was lifted up, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. Because you see, Jesus, as he's just evidenced here in John chapter 3, he is, we could say, the true and better brass serpent. 
that is lifted up for every sinner to look upon and believe and have eternal life. Because in him, when he is crucified on that horrible Roman spigot on the hill of Golgotha, we see the full realization of that image of salvation in the wilderness. As Jesus brings onto himself all of the world's sins. You see, Jesus descends from heaven. He comes, as he says here in John 3, he comes down from heaven. And when he does, how does he find us? How does he find his creatures? Snake-bitten and strangled half to death by the venom of sin. He finds us dying and finding the ones he loves in a state of near death, in a state of certain eternity in hell, what does he do? He goes to the very place of death and takes their place for them, becoming their substitute, standing in the stead of every single sinner who has ever lived, which is everyone. And there, on that wretched Roman tree, Jesus becomes himself our substitute, our emblem of death, if you will. He becomes the emblem and the symbol of death for the sake of those who are dying by actually dying himself in order that we who should die might live. What logic, what grace, confounding as it is, And yet this, this is the logic, yes, of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he saves us by being made sin for those, for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He saves us from sin by being made sin. Galatians 3, 13, he redeems us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. See, Christ alone bears the brunt of all of heaven's wrath for sin and yes, all of the devil's venom in order that you and I might be delivered and rescued and redeemed and might walk into glory with eternal life stamped upon our foreheads. What glory? Because Christ did it all. Look and live, believe and have eternal life. This is the good news of Scripture, which all of the books of the Bible bring to bear. Every single book brings to bear this news that Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And let me tell you tonight that Satan will do whatever he can for you to not hear this news. He's working perhaps even now. (laughs) He wants to distract you. He wants you to hear not the truth of these words. He wants you to hear his twisted version of it. He would rather you not hear any of these beloved gospel truths because he would do whatever he can to contaminate everything that the Bible says in order that we might believe something else. Like taking an emblem of God's deliverance and turning it into an idol. That's what he does. This is the devil's scheme. It's not new. It's been there from the beginning. Ever since Eden, Genesis 3, what has Satan been doing? His business, his industry, if you will, has not necessarily then been uh, that of manufacturing falsehood. 
Satan doesn't have to manufacture lies as much as he has to taint the truth with a just ever so slightly a little bit of falsehood. He can just ape sort of what God has already done and said and use his own sort of logic and then man is sent into ruin. The end result is the same. But instead of convincing us of some new truth, what Satan does is he takes what God has said and done and adds his twist, just like the serpent. Because that's what Satan is. He's a trafficker of half-truths. That's his game. Deception. For example, just think about what he has done with the church in the realm of religion I would say that the greatest hoax that Satan has ever pulled over the eyes of mankind is by deceiving droves of men and women into thinking that they can save themselves by themselves. The greatest lie ever told is that you can do it is that you can muster up enough righteousness and holiness and enough good things not only to pay God back, but also not only to pay your debt, but also to win heaven for yourself. That's a lie. Very profound theological word for it, hogwash. It's garbage. It's a lie straight from the mouth of the father of lies himself. Because there's nothing that you or I could ever, ever do in a thousand lifetimes that could ever lead to eternal life, could ever lead to salvation. And this is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, wherein, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, period. There's not an ellipsis there. There's not a footnote. There's not a qualifier. There's no fine print that is implanted onto the end of the gospel message. Like the fine print on car commercials that promise some such deal that you're going to get if you bring your clunker to them. They'll give you a brand nice new shiny one if you meet all the little things that are in the bottom bar that you cannot read and the voiceover guy reads way too fast. That's not the gospel. There's no fine print to it. There's no qualifier It's salvation by grace through faith. It's looking and living, believing and have eternal life because the Savior took on death. He took on your death and mine. He became the serpent on a tree so that we who were snake-bitten by sin could live eternally. What profound grace. And yet in churches and in places all across this country and the world even. There are folks who still believe that they can get by on their own, that they can get into glory by themselves, by what they do, by how much devotions they have, by how much good things they can muster, by how humanitarian they are. I'm reminded of the words, I think it's in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus says to the man that you are not far from the kingdom, 
not far, but eternally closed off. You were close. (laughs) Close, but no cigar, as the old saying goes. The lie of the bronze serpent is very much still alive even to this day. It's the lie that that what God has established is not good enough. That something else is required. That something, some other form of deliverance we have to seek after, we have to find, we have to pray for. My friends, all the deliverance you could ever want is right here in front of us in these scriptures which show us the Savior who bled out for you and me who bled and died for we who are dying. That's the gospel. There's no other other message that the church needs. There's no other truth that we need to champion. There's no other message that you and I need to hear to get rid of the venom that sometimes pops up in our own lives other than the message that the Christ of God has taken our sins onto that wretched Roman tree. He has become the serpent that we might be saved. Everything else has to be crushed. So just like Hezekiah, perhaps you can think of some such way in which God's truth, God's grace, God's love has been turned into something else. And we might ask ourselves, what needs to be crushed in our own lives? Where have we gotten off? What has become Nehushtan to our own lives, to our own faith, to our own souls? Where have we gotten away from the simple message of look and live? Sometimes, this is not in my notes, this is free. Sometimes I think we like to make the gospel more complex than it is. We like to add a little bit of something, a little twist, a little bit of fluff. For some such reason, we like to make it harder on ourselves, as if we do have to scratch and crawl our way to get to Jesus. My friends, he is here He's right in front of you, revealed in the written, written black and white and perhaps on your version of the Bible, the red words of the Bible that is sitting in front of you. And his salvation is as real as the blood that spilled out of his veins and mixed with Jewish dirt. That's how real your salvation is. That's how real your hope is. That's how real the gospel is. And for that, we say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. God, I I love you. I thank you for these scriptures, for the truths that they contain. I am a measly voice of what your beloved words show us and reveal to us. Lord, by your spirit, I pray that you would apply these words to every soul here. Souls who perhaps may not know that they needed them. But I pray that you, God, would be championed in the life of every single believer here in this room. That they would be made to see that all that is falling upon them now is to look and live. And there they will see the eyes of their Savior Redeemer who takes their death for them.
God alone. You are God alone. There is no other. We look to you for all of our hope and life and peace. Be with us, I pray, in your name. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.